Let's pray together before we begin tonight. Father, we do thank you that your word contains all that we need to know in every situation. And Father, I thank you that you have given us a, an instruction book which is so clear on these issues of life. Father, I do ask in Jesus' name that tonight your Holy Spirit is going to do the speaking. That, Father, we might get the right balance as far as our responsibility to this present evil age is concerned. Oh, Father, we just long to see people saved. And, Father, if through our good works they might be saved, then, Father, we would ask you to make us filled with good works. We thank you, Father, that salvation is through faith in Christ. But, Father, I know that once we have been saved, you desire that we should show forth the fruit of our salvation. Father, tonight, in Jesus' name, will you just convict us? Father, if we have been lazy, Father, if we have been wrong in our attitude towards the world, and Father, just show us the balance that we have to get in order to be in fellowship with you and yet at the same time doing that which you require of us. Oh, Father, just take my mouth and use it for your glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. After many weeks, we come tonight to the last of the aims of a fellowship. And that is the subject of doing good in the world. And because this is the last time I'll have the opportunity of mentioning it, I want to repeat something that I've said time and time again as we've been studying the aims of a fellowship. And that is that the six aims we have defined, as far as fellowship life is concerned, can be divided into three groups. And the reason these are so important is this, that if we keep these groups in the right order, then we will find that we will never become barren nor dry up, but always true to God. Do you remember that uh, the first and second aim that I defined can be grouped together and they have to do with our 100% commitment to God. Aims three and four can be lumped together and they are to do with our 100% commitment to one another and aims five and six are bracketed together and they have to do with our 100% commitment to the world Jesus died to save. Now, that is the order that I gave it in, and do you remember the important thing that I said? Every fellowship must keep it in that order. Our first responsibility is to God, then our responsibility is to one another, and lastly, our responsibility is to the world. It's only when that order is rejuggled, as it were, that you start seeing fellowships going wrong. And that is why when you come to our meetings, you will find that it's our love of the Lord that is the first thing that should hit you. We love him and we praise him and we joy in him and we speak about his word. That's our commitment to him. And once that's right, everything else follows from that. Now that's so important, but it's especially important tonight. Because when we're dealing with doing good in the world, very often it is Satan who moves in on this sixth aim and tries to, to uh, disrupt the way that a fellowship is going. I have known many, many people and many, many fellowships get into social do-gooding and at first it's fine, but eventually it causes them to put it first 
as their first priority, and then they put the love and the worship of the Lord second to that. This is a ploy of the enemy. In fact, it is the error that Judas Iscariot made. Do you remember when the woman came to Jesus and she took this very precious ointment and she broke it over the feet of Jesus? And do you remember Judas said, what a waste, he said. Why is this waste? This ointment could have been sold for 200 pence and given to the poor. Do you remember that? And that is what the devil is constantly trying to say in the church. This old phrase, you're so heavenly mindly minded, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good at all. And the devil would love to get the church of Jesus Christ away from what is central, that is their worship of the Lord, and busy doing good, busy occupied with things that actually at their base have the aim of saving mankind through mankind. He'd love to do it. I want to say that this is something very close to my own heart. When I was at university, I had a great friend who came not from the university, but from the town in which the university was situated, who was really on fire for God. And this man loved preaching the gospel. He was at every prayer meeting. He was at every Bible study. He was a real pillar in the church. And all he wanted to do was lead people to Christ. He used to go door to door knocking all over the place, preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And then a Christian couple saw him and said, look, uh, we need someone to help us in the social work that we're doing. Nothing wrong in that at all. And he said, fine, well, I, look, I, I've got an evening free. I'll come along and help you. And he asked us, and we all thought, that's really great. It's wonderful to see a Christian getting involved in this way. And, you know, he really loved the social work, really adored it. He came along to the meetings and said, well, you know, I don't get an opportunity to speak about the law, but I'm really believing that God's going to use it. And that was fine, except that soon there was a change in him. And we found after a while that he began missing the prayer meetings. It was very subtle, it was very slow at first, and then he started missing the Bible studies. And before long, he wasn't at any of the meetings either. Well, of course, you have to allow people their freedom. But after a while, some of us actually went to see him and said, look, how come? You used to be so keen and now we don't see you at all. And his instant reaction was, you know, I'm still in fellowship with God. Don't have to come along and have fellowship with you just to prove I'm in fellowship with God. Have you heard that type of thing said before? It's the usual thing that's said, you know. And we said, are you all right? Sure, he said, I can stand, you know. And then one person in our group actually said, well, brother, it does say neglect not the gathering of yourselves together, doesn't it? Oh, he didn't want to listen to that. And we knew that something was going seriously wrong, you know, with him. By the way, you'll always find that uh, in every fellowship, and I'll just say this for the sake of completeness, there are people who decide that they're not going to come to the meetings. Sometimes it's legitimate, you know, some person may have a real problem on their hearts and they need time at home waiting upon God. Normally that doesn't last for more than a week or two. But then you get those, you know, who leave for other reasons. Some of the worst reasons, of course, there are two very bad reasons. Uh, one is, well, um, you know, I got a bit tired now of worshipping the Lord and everything. And what they really feel is that they've received all they can receive from a fellowship now and they have no sense of responsibility, no sense of now ploughing back into the group that they've received so much from. Or there's the arrogant type, you know, well, I can do it by myself now, you know. In fact, you're holding me back. <laughs> most, 
and I have to say this, I have been through that in my heart, and fortunately I resisted it, you know, some years ago, because I read that scripture that said, look, neglect not the gathering of yourselves together. And that, that would be fine, you see, if there weren't an enemy called the devil around who is seeking those whom he might devour. And who does he get? He always gets those, you know, who are isolated from the pack. And that's exactly what happened to this dear brother. This dear brother married and is married today to a lovely Christian woman. But before long, within six months in fact, he had now changed his pattern of knocking at the door. He still knocked at doors, but now it was a as a communist. And he started knocking at the door. Today he's a fully paid up member of the Communist Party. And I'll have to tell you this, the latest news I had of him, which is just this weekend, is that he's got a diploma for writing a thesis proving that the devil doesn't exist. You know, I think the devil probably wrote it myself, but uh, that's what he's done. And you see what's happened? He got so interested in social work that instead of putting it third in priority, he put it first in priority, and that's where the danger came. Now, the people who could have stopped that, that is the body of Christ, he was conveniently removed from the body of Christ. Of course, his own arrogance drew him away. And so today, much to the distress of his lovely Christian wife, who's still in fellowship, this man is right away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's wrong. Let's just turn to a, a passage in Galatians chapter 6, and it's in verse 10, and let's just see in this verse how it clearly says that priority two, that is to serve one another, comes above our service to the world. In verse 10 of Galatians in chapter 6, this is what it says. And every part of this verse is important. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have, therefore, opportunity... I'm going to repeat that, because it's important later on. As we have, therefore, opportunity... Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And what this says is, it is perfectly good to do good to all men, but the first priority is to do good to those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, what this verse also says is this, if your time is fully taken up serving the body of Jesus Christ, then you won't have time to serve people who are outside the body of Jesus Christ. And that's legitimate. You might read that and say, now hold on, that's not right, is it? Surely this is wrong. Let me give you an analogy which I think will make it clear. Say that you are so busy in your life that you ho only have one hour to give to other people in a week. Now, it's not true of many people, though some people pretend it is true of them. But say you are one of these people and you've only got one hour to help those who are in need. And on that particular week, you find two people who are in need. And you know that you can only help one of them in this hour. Now, how do you choose between them? Well, let's uh, just, for the sake of this example, say that one of them happened to be your son, or your grandmother, or your long-lost aunt, or something like that, a relative. And the other happened to be just a neighbor who lived three doors down. Who would you choose of those two? Well, the Bible would say that quite clearly your responsibility is to your own family, first of all. Family must come above those around you. You see, of course, we are the spiritual family of God. 
So that changes the order slightly for us. But can you see there, you'd make a, a distinction, and family would come first. Now, by serving the body of Christ first, you are actually underlining the fact that we all belong to the one family of God. Every person in this room, if you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a father in heaven. And this means I'm your brother. You've got to put up with me for all eternity, so you may as well start getting used to it now. You are my brother, you are my sister, whoever you are. And by helping you, I am saying to the devil and to all of his angels and to the elect angels, I recognize the tremendous work that God has done. This family is real, and I will give myself to God's family first. And if I have any time over, I will then help those who are not part of God's family. Now, that's what this verse is actually saying. So if you find you're one of those people that has, has limited time, if someone in the body comes to you, you must help those first. If no one from the body comes, then, of course, you can help anyone at all that you happen to find who's in need at that particular time. But do you see the order that is given here? This is very, very important. So that verse gives the balance that doing good in the world is under doing good to one another. That's important. Right, having said that, I have to tell you that the biggest error that Christians make, however, is the opposite error. The vast majority of born-again fundamentalist Christians make the opposite error, which is to think that they don't have to do anything in the world. Why? You have them coming along saying, well, we're not of the world anymore. You know, we're just not. So we have no responsibility to people outside whatsoever. And if I have a period free and I hear of someone in need, I'm not going to help them. I'm too busy worshipping the Lord or whatever it is. And they're using it, not genuinely, but as an excuse. The question for us is, is that attitude correct? Well, this verse also uh, actually answers that question. Notice what it says. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. And this says that if you are a Christian, if you get the opportunity, you should do good to those who are around you in the world. Many Christians act just like the dropouts we have in our society. I always think the dropouts are some of the biggest hypocrites out. They're true in certain ways and real hypocrites in others. They always say we've dropped out of society. But they've never dropped out sufficiently to make them miss the dole queue. I notice. Have you ever noticed that? They still queue up for the dole money, and this very society that they want to turn over is actually providing them with their cigarettes and with everything else that they want. Now, that's a real dropout, isn't it? No, it's not at all. And we must see that we live in this world, even though we're not of it, and we receive many benefits from this world. It is non-Christians, probably, that provide you with electricity, that provide us with the light for this evening's Bible study. It is non-Christians who probably provide you with water. And therefore, to cut yourself out completely from the world is all wrong. That's where every group that's come into exclusivism has gone wrong. That's terribly evil, you know. Oh, well, we're the children of God now. We have nothing to do with the world whatsoever. You don't find that in Scripture, not at all. Our responsibility is that as we have opportunity, we must do good in the world. Incidentally, this sort of... Um, wrong sense of spirituality has come again from Greek education. Isn't it funny how the Greek education has given us so much that is wrong? The Greeks believed, as I've explained elsewhere, I think, that anything which is physical is evil. 
But anything that's spiritual is good, you see? That's what the Greeks believed. And so, of course, they used to think, well, it doesn't matter what you do to the body, forget the body. It's what's in the body that counts, the spirit. And we Christians have inherited something of that thinking. We really have. That's why Paul, of course, made such a stir when he actually said, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And who did he write it to? To a Greek church. They didn't believe it. What? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? No, 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 your spirit is. No, says Paul, your body is. And do you know that the Bible constantly says that it's not just the spirit that's important, it's the body that's important too. In fact, the spirit needs the body in order to manifest itself. That's what the Bible actually says. Do you see? And we mustn't get into that thinking. We do have some responsibility as the opportunity comes up to do good in the world. But this doing good is not to win you your salvation. It's not to win you spurs in heaven. If it's for anything, it's to enhance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think if I give an example of one place that I know that did this very well, it will clarify the matter very easily. I go sometimes to minister in a fellowship in Dublin, you know, and there are several fellowships in Dublin, and this one is in rather a posh area of Dublin. They're quite um, well-to-do in this particular estate. And one of the Christians bought a house in this well-to-do estate, you know, and there is his house right in the middle of this well-to-do estate. And then the Lord began giving him a ministry. And unfortunately, it wasn't to the well-to-do in fact, it was to the motorbike brigade and jo dropouts in Dublin. Now, you probably think Dublin has no dropouts. You're wrong. It has some dropouts. And this chap suddenly found that these people were responding to the gospel. So he thought, well, we better start some meetings in the house. So suddenly, this well-to-do estate, and they're all so proud of how wonderful the estate was, you know, and the nice gardens and things, suddenly found the roar of motorbikes becoming their Sunday portion and once a week on a Tuesday or whatever evening they met on during the week. And uh, they really didn't like it very much. In fact, the word fellowship had a very, very bad name on this particular estate. Well, the man searched around for a hall. He couldn't find a hall anywhere to meet. In fact, that's wrong. He did find a hall, but it was even more in the center of the estate than his own house. And he tried another thing. He told all the motorbike brigade, look, leave your motorbikes outside and walk through the estate. But the estate didn't like that either. And they didn't know what to do. And he prayed about it. He said, Lord, we've got such an awful name on this estate. How are you going to help us? And then the Lord seemed to answer the prayer. A few years after he'd prayed the prayer, suddenly there was a dustman strike. And it didn't just last for one or two weeks either. It went on and on and on and on and on. And this well-to-do estate suddenly had quite a smell around it. <laughs> And they couldn't blame the motorbike brigade this time either. And there was piles of rubbish in every garden on this estate. And suddenly the elder thought, what should we do about this? And he suddenly got a brainwave. You know what he did? He hired an old lorry and he collected together the strong, fit people in the fellowship, men and women. He said, put on your oldest clothes, which to some of them was the clothes they wore to the Sunday meetings. And he said, um, now what you've got to do is this. Go round the whole estate and we'll park the van in a certain block, knock on the door, say, excuse me, we're from the fellowship, we've come to collect your rubbish. <laughs> and in they went, 
in they went and they started collecting the rubbish. And they said, we're from the fellowship, we've come to collect your rubbish. And they unloaded all of the rubbish, they didn't preach the gospel at all, into this old van outside. One or two people said, no, we don't want it, thank you very much. And then the husband would say, don't we, darling? And, and, and those, houses that, uh, those houses that refused, do you know what they did? They went back to give them a second chance. And the second chance, every single one of them accepted the offer. And you know, from that day on, the, the whole attitude towards the fellowship has changed in that particular locality. Now, there they were doing good, but what for? To enhance the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that is the correct use of doing that which is good. Do you see what I'm saying? So, we as Christians have to be prepared to be practical and be down to earth as far as the world is concerned, but as we have opportunity. This verse, verse 10 in Galatians 6, does not say go around looking for things to do. Generally, the body of Christ needs so much time itself that most of us don't have too much time left over. So don't start being a busybody and a social do-gooder or anything like that, but when you come across a circumstance in which doing good will help, then be prepared to do it, and with all your heart. This corrects this wrong super-spirituality that comes in so many fellowships. Incidentally, the parable of the Good Samaritan also corrects it. I, wonder, I think it's worth our while turning to that parable. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. And let's see how many of us today are just like the lawyer that Jesus was speaking to. And verse 25. <clears throat> now this lawyer is not a born-again man. But he is a religious man. And he's one who interprets the law, of course. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, this is Luke 10, 25, and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the reason why it was tempting Jesus was this. Jesus was saying that it's only belief in him that led to eternal life. And so now he's tempting him to make him admit that. Jesus, knowing he's a lawyer, actually goes to the law. And what Jesus says, no man can ever do, but the lawyer thought he could. Verse 26, he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And as a lawyer and a religious man, he thought he had done this. But then he adds, And thy neighbor as thyself. And as Jesus looks at him, he knows one thing about religion, that religion might think it worships the Lord they, they might think they worship the Lord their God with all their hearts, but I don't think many of them would claim to love their neighbor as their self. In fact, religion tends to the opposite of that. So it's that that Jesus picks up on. Look what he says. Verse 28. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Of course, if I'd been Jesus, I would have said, If you can do it, do it, you know, but of course you can't. Now, immediately, the lawyer is convicted because he knows that the last part of that is something that he doesn't do. In fact, the Jews generally felt that you could be choosy about who was your neighbours. Not in terms of where you lived, as we might in Britain, but uh, if they saw someone in need, they would actually, first of all, say, are they Jewish? 
And secondly, they'd say, are they of our sect? If they are, we'll help them. If they're not, well, they're no neighbor of mine. That's what they would say. And so, verse 29, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, well, give me a definition of who the neighbor is. And Jesus then speaks this parable. And do you know what he's going to say in this parable? That anyone in need that you come across is your neighbor. That's what he says. And this teaching holds true today. Anyone who happens to be in need that you directly come across in your daily life, they are your neighbor. And more than that, Jesus says that the person who helps someone in need is the neighbor. Let's just read it. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He doesn't define who the man was, doesn't say he was Jewish, doesn't say what color he was, what religion he had, or anything. And he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He looked at him and thought, this is not one of us, he is no neighbor of mine, and on he went. Verse 32, and likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, and remember that the Jews and the Samaritans were mortal enemies, they hated one another. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto to him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again I will repay thee. Then Jesus asked this question, not, was this man your neighbor, but, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do likewise. And that is the teaching of Jesus. And this is the balanced Christian teaching. Don't get so preoccupied with social work that it takes your eyes off the Lord. But if in the course of your life you come upon people, and it doesn't matter what color they are, it doesn't matter what sex they are, what religion they are, what nationality they are, what race they are, what anything they are, if you come across them, then you have a responsibility to actually meet their need. Now, that's the balance that Jesus is giving here. All right, having said that then, what I want to do is get down to real brass tacks and actually look at how we can do good in the world. And I want to do this under five main headings. So let's just take this. <clears throat> under five main headings, some of these are spiritual activity, others are really practical and down to earth. We can do good in the world, first of all, by being active Christians. That's the first way. Let's uh, go to Matthew chapter 5 and let's uh, have a look at this. Matthew chapter 5.
And verse 13, and I'm going to read through to verse 16. Ye are the salt of the earth, he says to believers, and this is true of believers in every age. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Right, that's salt. Second thing, 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So it's salt and light. Verse 16. Let your light so shine before men, and it means non-Christians, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. All right, let's take these two analogies. Now, most people have spoken on salt at some time or other. I tried to list down all the things that I know that salt does. And you'll find every single one of them has some application to the Christian. I wonder how many you can think of. Probably you can add to this list. I got these. First of all, salt preserves, doesn't it? It stops um, rot setting into something. Before freezers and the word blanching became popular, we used to actually um, uh, preserve things with salt. Do you remember you used to get a big glass jar, you used to put a layer of salt. I remember it because as a boy, my job was breaking up the lump of salt, you know, that we had. You used to buy this lump of rock salt and break it up. A layer of salt, then a layer of runner beans. Normally runner beans, wasn't it? You did this way. Then another layer of salt, then more runner beans. You used to pack them in tightly. And lo and behold, they used to be fresh. And all you had to do is soak them in water to get rid of the salt, and you have fresh runner beans. So salt preserves. Next, salt adds flavour. That's true. The next, salt de-ices. Have you noticed that? So where you get people who are rather, uh, you know, were rather cold to say the least, we as Christians can actually give them some of the heat of the Lord and start de-icing. It also cleanses in certain circumstances. It creates thirst. Oh, if only more Christians created thirst in the non-Christians around them. And the last thing is, in a wound, it stings, right? Uh, I sting especially at funerals. I have to say, as far as the non-Christian is concerned. But notice, with all of those things, it only works if it's in close proximity to the thing it's meant to affect. And the whole analogy of salt isn't to say, you come out of the world, it's to say, no, you're in the world, as salt. And if we are going to do these things, we must be involved with the world. Obviously, we've got to have interrelationship. Remember the warning, however, but what happens if the salt loses its savour? And this is the great tragedy, that today in the church generally, do you know the world has infiltrated the church more than the church has infiltrated the world? I can say, as a minister of the Lord, most of my ministry is trying to get rid of the world that creeps in to people's lives through television, through radio, through newspapers, through all these other things. And the, it comes in because Christians haven't got the discernment to see what is good and what is bad. They don't use their Christian understanding to actually vet the things that they're receiving, you see? And there it is. The world has crept in. It's the most terrible thing. And so the salt has started losing its savour. By the way, that's a reference to the fact that some people used to add gypsum 
to salt. Gypsum, have you ever had a mouthful of gypsum? I had to, you know, when I was studying geography. And it really, oh, it's the most horrible thing, really is. But it looks a bit like salt, you see? And so what it's saying is, well, if you get diluted with that which is in the world, you've lost your savour. That's why every Christian must stick out for the Lord where they are. The next thing was, of course, uh, light, right? Having dealt with salt, next one was light. And you'll find that light either attracts people or repels. Have you noticed that? It has one of those two reactions. Some people like light, others do not like light. So you've got one of those two reactions. And we are the light of the world, notice. And, he says, no man lights a candle and puts it under a bucket. That's it, nonsense. And that's why these exclusive little groups who have no contact with the world, they get a nice little village somewhere, cut miles from anywhere, and they get a complete Christian community. Why, it's like lighting a, a, a candle and putting a bucket over the candle. It's nonsense. The Lord would never do that. Where's the light needed? Why, where it's darkest, of course. Now, the application for us is this, that God has put us in this area of West Sussex, and we are here to be active in our Christianity in this place. And that's why when we come together as active Christians, as the salt and light of this place, we come to worship the Lord and to hold him high. As we hold him high, we are having a marvellous effect on the society we are in. As we praise him, as we speak out the word. By the way, in the Bible studies, you get things that the normal man in the street in Chichester would disagree fundamentally with. Yes, it's the salt. You know, moving out into, into society. That's why we pray for this area. We take on the powers and principalities. They can't do it, but we can do it. And as a result, God blesses this area. Isn't it wonderful? That's the uh, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember what Abraham said to God? God, in Sodom and Gomorrah, if there are ten righteous, will you save that place? And God said, I will. Just ten, that's all I need. We don't know how big, Sodom, how big Sodom and Gomorrah were, you know, the city, how big it, it was. But uh, it, it's probable that it was no more than, say, two or 3,000. Now, if you multiply the size of Chichester, that by the size of Chichester, say Chichester is eight to ten times bigger than that, well, do you see, uh, we need 80 to 100 people in Chichester and 80 to 100 people in Bognor in order to preserve this place from destruction. Well, praise God... We might have it in this area. So we do good in the world. Do you see? That's one way, by being active in our Christianity. Now that's the first um, thing that I want to say. The second thing, right? We can do good in the world by living under the laws of the land. That's the second thing. We can do good by living under the laws in the land. And you remember, we do this except where they contradict the word of God. There, you have no responsibility to obey those laws. Right? But always check up with a Bible teacher before you think a law has contradicted the word of God. All right? That's how we do it. In other words, Christians should be noted as the most peace-loving, law-abiding citizens that there are, that they, Christians, that there are in a certain place. 
Very, very important for us as believers to see this. And this is why it is not true that Christians should be anti-establishment and should be revolutionaries. You know, this old nonsense that's put out. John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples, they were all revolutionaries. Oh, nonsense. They certainly were not. They were very much pro-law and order. And notice, in the Acts of the Apostles, when they were under threat, who did they call upon? Why, the law. Paul actually says, I appeal to Caesar. Instantly. That's not a revolutionary speaking. We've got to get this out of our thinking. We must be law-abiding. We must pay our taxes. We must pay our rates. We must pay the rents. We must do all things like that. This also applies in your place of work. Christian employees should be the best employees that are on that particular site. We should be best at our jobs. We should be the most punctual. We should be the most reliable that they have. We should be the ones that the em employer should really trust. Uh, the employers who are Christians should be really good and fair in their dealings with their workforce. Let's uh, just see that quickly in Colossians chapter 3. This is not revolutionary stuff. Though if it, were, if it were ever accepted by Christians, it would cause quite a revolution, may I say. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 22. Where you see servants. It does mean servants, but for us the application is employees. And notice here, the teaching is not servants. The system you're under is evil. Try and run away. Try and rebel. Try and assassinate your master. And then set up a workers' cooperative doesn't say that. See, you don't find that in the Bible. What do you find? Verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters. Isn't that amazing? This is revolutionary Paul talking. You know, you're a slave. Great. Enjoy it. That's what he's saying. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. So when I worked in Tesco's, I worked heartily unto the Lord, stacking up those tins of corned beef and everything else, you know. And they loaded my trolley higher and higher and higher, and I got happier and happier and happier as I was working as unto the Lord. That's it. Listen, it's, the revolutionaries are only those who think that this life is all there is. We don't. We know there's a future reward that's coming for us. That's what this goes on to say. Verse 24, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord, Lord uh, Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. There is no respect of persons, no matter who you think you are. Right? You might think you're uh, Arthur Scargill himself. But uh, I'm sorry, you won't be let off this. If you do that which is wrong, you will receive God's wrath for it. And then verse 1 of the next chapter. Masters, or employers, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Oh, and there's one verse. I could quote lots of verses on this. Can we just go to one verse that really spoke to me in Luke uh, chapter 3? Luke and chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, verse 14, and here you've got teaching given by John the Baptist. All right, and soldiers came to John the Baptist 
And here's revolutionary old John the Baptist. What's he going to say to these soldiers? What he doesn't say is, well, look, you shouldn't be soldiers at all. Call yourself believers and you're in the armed forces. That's a disgrace. You should join pacifism or CND or some one of these other organizations. He doesn't say that, you see, not at all. Look what he says, and I must... Um, tell you what part of this means. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? He said unto them, do violence to no man. Now he's not saying there that you mustn't fight as a soldier. What he's talking about here is the type of thing that went on in his day and still goes on in our world today, where a band of soldiers in their spare time go and terrorize a local community. You know that they do this, don't you? And uh, you know they're the commander is in barracks, and so they go off to a certain part of the town, and they uh, take over a certain part of the town. They loot houses and things. It doesn't happen in Britain, but it does in certain parts of the world. And it certainly happened at this time. He says, don't do anything like that. In other words, don't put fear into the hearts of the local inhabitants, and don't give them wrong violence. Don't. Then the next thing he says to them is, neither accuse any falsely, and then, be content with your wages. That's good revolutionary stuff, isn't it? Right? Imagine me as a revolutionary leader. Okay, brothers, you've got to be content with your wages. You know, it wouldn't really get the TUC really stirred up, I don't think. <laughs> you know, really. But that's what John the Baptist said to these particular soldiers. Now, can you see, in all these things, you are actually living under the laws of the land and you are excelling for Christ. The third thing that I want to talk about, which is also spiritual and does good in the world, is this. Number three, live upright lives in society. And this I'm, by this I'm talking about sinfulness and the way you behave. It's odd, in our present society you have one of two extremes. You've got those who think it's right to always do your own thing. That's the phrase that's used today. You know, well, I don't care what people want of me. I'm not going to conform. I'm going to do my own thing. That's it. Oh, don't give me those laws. I'm going to do my own thing. But on the other hand, you've got those who are frightened to be different. You know? And they don't want to do what the herd is doing, but they feel that they should do what the herd is doing. Otherwise, they're not going to be liked. You know, won't have any friends. And so along they go. And you've got those two extremes. The Bible says, by the way, that Christians sometimes have to do both of those. Right? As far as law is concerned, we've got to go along with the herd. In other words, the laws of the land are those that we must obey. But sometimes it's right to stick out like a sore thumb, you know. And we Christians have got to be prepared to do that sometimes. In the book of Revelation, there's a certain doctrine which God is said to hate, and it's called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Today, the church is, is deeply involved with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This doctrine says, if you don't go down to the temple and worship idols, how are you going to reach the idolaters? What are you Christians doing meeting in your churches? You should be down there in the places of idol worship. That's how you're going to reach them. You see? And that's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Today, uh, the equivalent is this. Look, you're too standoffish. If you want to get out to drunks, go and get merry with them. You know, go down. Yes. We've got a vicar at home. He's so popular, you know. As soon as the service is over, he joins us in the old boozer. We have a real laugh with him. 
Great, that's a good type of chap. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that I'm talking about, you see. Oh, you want to reach hippies? Get like a hippie. That's what it says. Yeah, long hair down to your waist, you know, and big beard, preferably, and walk around as if you're in a semi-drug state. And that's what you do, you see. If you want to get troopers, swear like a trooper. That's what they say. Oh, these Christians. Oh, that fellowship up there. They're too spiritual, honestly. You know, they don't like it when I swear. Well, I mean, really, I can't, can't get spiritual as all that. And that's a nice little compromise. The doctrine of, of, you've got to accept me as I am. Swearing's just part of me. That's what they say. Oh, nonsense. The Holy Spirit's in you, you know, to purify you. Fancy that, salt. You're supposed to be salt. Sound more like gypsum, don't you? You see? We've got to be prepared to live upright lives and not compromise. Do you know, most people who give in to things like this, it's all self-indulgence. Quite honestly, they want, they've, they've had enough of being sold out to God. Now I've got to have my say. That's it. This Christianity is all right, but there comes a limit. Now I've got to really go, you see? Well, no, no. At that point, the cross of Christ has to be applied to your life. You see, oh, but this Christianity is hard. Yes, it is hard. And it's holiness that God actually um, wants for us. And by the way, you'll always hear those who say, well, I led someone to the Lord like that. What they don't tell you is the number of Christians that have gone wrong through this type of thing. For example, I know a minister who will remain nameless who actually was married as a non-Christian by a Christian girl. She, she knew it was wrong, but she married this man. And two years later, he was converted. You see? And that just proves, doesn't it, that it's right for a non-Christian sometimes to marry a Christian or, or vice versa, isn't it? No, it's not. Because what you don't hear is the other thousand who didn't leave, sorry, who didn't lead their respective partner to the Lord and who today regret it. You see? You mustn't do that type of thing. And there are Christians today on the rubbish heap because, quite honestly, they trod too far into the enemy camp. I had a lovely uh, example. Oh, I think, uh, let's just go to Philippians 2. And from this, I'll tell you the example that came to my mind just then. In Philippians chapter 2, look what it says, verse 14 and 15. I have described Philippians 2.14 as the most neglected verse in the Bible. It's the one we all conveniently uh, ignore because we have a legitimate right to complain, not only about things in the world, but things about the fellowship and things about one another. And this is absolutely right. See? Do all things without murmuring and disputing. The most neglected verse in the Bible, I'm sure it is. Verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights. They're wicked and perverse, but you shine as a light. There it is. You will sometimes find you're in a situation where the herd presses against you. Come and conform, or else we're not going to like you. That will be the situation. You'll find this especially at work. At that point, you have to make a judgment. A friend of mine came to visit me last Friday, just popped in for lunch. I was at university with this chap. He said, oh, right, he said, I met a chap who did geography with you. He said, I went um, to a wedding a few weeks ago and he was related to the bride or the groom, whichever it was. His name is so-and-so-and-so-and-so. I said, oh yes, I remember him. You know, I do remember him too. He's a party boozer, like most of the geographers. 
the geography set, you know, was really quite a merry set. It really was. They enjoyed life to the full. You know, many people said it was because geography was so boring, but that wasn't true. <laughs> and uh, the trouble was that I, of course, first of all, I was never into the drinking scene anyway. I mean, as a non-Christian, it was never my area of weakness. And pubs were not home to me like they are to so many people. It just it wasn't part of me. But apart from that, of course, I really wanted to spend the time with the Lord, not uh, draped over a bar somewhere, you see. <laughs> and after a hard day's grind out on a field trip somewhere, you know, we've been plotting sand dunes or interviewing Catholics in Northern Ireland, which is one of the jobs I had to do, or peasant farmers and counting sheep and things like this. When work finished at about nine o'clock or half past nine, they used to pop off down the local you know, and they used to get really merry down there. Now, every evening, they were all friends of mine, I got on very well with them, they say, come on, Rog, you know, down the old boozer, you know? <laughs> and I used to say to them and say, well, I, actually, I'm not going to the boozer, you know? And, I, and they said, why? You know, haven't you finished your work? Oh, yeah, I finished my work, but I, I'm going to uh, go upstairs, read my Bible, have a time with the law, thanks. Oh... <sighs> And off they used to go. And it was rather interesting. I think they were, well, they certainly were friends of mine. I think they had quite a respect. But, you know, I can't say I led any of them to the Lord. But this friend of mine at the wedding met a chap I'd done geography with. And he said, oh, you were at Reading at that time. He said, did you ever meet a chap called Roger Price? Oh, yes, he said. Roger Price? Yeah, I remember him. He was a religious, wasn't he? You know, and then he said, yes, I, do you know, he said, there was something about that fellow. He said, we all knew he was religious, but do you know, he never compromised once. And he actually brought up this thing about going to the pub. We all went to the pub. And do you know, we couldn't believe it that this chap went to his room instead of coming to the pub with us. And he then said, we all really respected him for doing it. And he said, quite honestly, most of us were too afraid, you know, we all had to go along with the crowd. And then this chap said, well, do you know he's just written a book? And the fellow said, really? He said, I'd like to read it. <laughs> Can you see? The fruit comes eventually, as long as we're prepared to stick out. And don't think that you'll lose their respect. In fact, they'll probably remember you. I bet he couldn't remember many of the others who were in the geography set. I certainly can't, and I've got a good memory for names. But he remembered me all right. You see, one day he might be in heaven because of that. You never know. All right, that's number three. Number four then, down to practicalities. And this is what we've seen in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do good when you have opportunity. Now, that's not just the Good Samaritan. Let's just go to the law of God. Let's go to Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 22, and this is what the law said. The law in Deuteronomy said that any person that was in trouble, it was your duty to help them. The little word brother here does not mean a believer. It means someone who is living in the local community that you're in. And do you know in Israel they never had a police force? They didn't need a police force because every man acted as a policeman. If only we would have this in our society, we wouldn't have any mugging at all on the streets. No, we wouldn't. 
we wouldn't have any vandalism either. This is a wonderful system. Look what it says. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. Now here is your brother's property. This, uh, this ox or whatever it is belongs to your next door neighbor and you see that it's about to wander off and get lost. Now the chap isn't around. What it says in the law is this. Don't turn a blind eye to it. You cannot. If you do, you are guilty under God's law. Don't just say, oh, it's none of my business, I'm just leaving it. He says, if you see that going on in your vicinity, it's your responsibility to take hold of those animals and take them back to their owner or keep them until the owner comes along to actually claim them. And so, and that's what verse 2 and 3 says. Verse 4, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. And so this means this, that should we be walking along the street or travelling along and there's an accident, it is our responsibility to help in that accident. If someone is involved in an emergency, it is our responsibility to get involved in that emergency. If someone's car is being damaged, it is our responsibility either to stop the damage or if the chap looks bigger than you are... <laughs> to actually get to the local phone box and report it to the police and be willing to stand as a witness against that person. Now, the present evil age in which we live says, don't get involved. None of my business. But one day it will be your business because it's going to be your house or your car or perhaps one of your relatives that is affected by this. The Bible says that you do not you are not permitted under God's law to turn a blind eye. You must get involved. I have stood as a police uh, witness to a certain event that took place in London. It takes an awful lot of time. You have to stand and be cross-examined, and it's very unpleasant, but it is your responsibility as a citizen to do it. Now, this also means, should you meet someone who is in dire need, it doesn't matter which religion they belong to, what race that doesn't matter. You have a responsibility to help them as far as you are able. All right? If the Lord's work takes everything, then you must put them in contact with people that can actually help them. But we, after all, can do miracles. Just the other week, my wife and I were walking along the seafront, and a distressed woman had a baby that had stopped breathing, hadn't breathed for about three minutes, you know, and had swallowed some vomit or something like this. And it was wonderful that we should just be there at that time. Of course, my wife dashed after, after her, you know, said, I'm a doctor. But, you know, it wasn't a doctor that brought that child back to life. It was the name of Jesus. And my wife just put her finger into the babe's mouth. There was no response. So she said, Jesus. And instantly the babe started, you know, to, to breathe. She didn't then say, now I'm a Christian and listen, uh, <laughs> that's not it. You see, obviously they were concerned with the emergency. We must get involved when we have the opportunity. This does not mean to say that if you can't swim, you plunge into the sea and you drown as well. It doesn't mean that. What it means, you occupy yourself as best as is possible. So as far as you have opportunity, do good in the world. This is why I happen to be a blood donor. 
This is why I happen to feel all responsible Christians, long as you're not queasy about it, should give blood. People in your local area are involved in accidents. They are going to need blood. This is an obvious way you can help. This is why, as we live by the coast, I do give some money to the National Lifeboat Institute. You know, that's one way of helping. There are people who may be in trouble out at sea. You see, and it's my, this is a way I can help. I can't help in any other way, but I can help in that way, so I will. As I have opportunity, I will do it. That is why hospital visiting is a very good thing. Why we as a fellowship have applied to have teams going to the hospital. We've been turned down so far, but undoubtedly we'll apply again. Why, if you know old people who live near you, right, who aren't necessarily members of the fellowship, go and get involved with them. I have always done it and I will continue to do it, even though it's very costly. This is doing uh, that which God requires. Restoration, caring, helping, loving are all things that we are specialists at and we must make sure that we do it. The fifth and last thing I want to say is do good in order to lead someone to Christ. And here it may be that through doing good to someone, they may be saved. About six years ago, I decided that as a hobby, I'd take up music. So I today have a music teacher, and I go once a week. Well, I miss quite a number of them, but I go as far as off I can once a week to a music lesson. About two or three years ago, I became far too busy to have this music lesson. But I knew that I loved that woman who taught me music, and I'm determined that she's going to be saved. And do you know, every week it's a terrible sacrifice. You've no idea. More often than not, God has to do a miracle to cover up my lack of practice. And he does it. <laughs> Wonderful. But I've generally found the less practice I do, the better I am on the day. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I keep with that woman because she is going to be saved. That's why, had you been at a certain duet concert a few days ago, you would have found me there with her. You see? Why? Scheming to get her into the body of Christ. And we've got to be prepared to be scheming if necessary. Pastor Vernbrand once shared a prison cell with thieves who spent hours scheming how to rob banks. And he was so convicted by it. He said, I want to save souls, yet I won't scheme at all to do it. This sometimes means you have to be patient. So let's end tonight back in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. And let's notice verse 9. And it says here in verse 9, before verse 10, which we saw, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And this means that doing good in the body of Christ and in the world takes effort and time and patience. But in the long run it is worth it, providing you've got your priorities right. And don't let's be foolish. The old Puritan John Brown said this. He said, so many Christians are children. They would sow and reap in a day. Well, any farmer will tell you, won't they, Roy, that no one ever sows and reaps in a day. It's six years and still I haven't harvested from my little plot. But we're going to carry on. This is doing good in the world. Let me just end with one warning. When you do good in the world... The world is not your master, even though you're acting like a servant in it. God always is your master. And in providing you will make God and the, the Lord Jesus Christ your master, you will be saved.
I just pray that God will reveal these things and put flesh on these words, that indeed he will show you where to do good, but where to avoid it when Satan has put it across your path. Next time, we're on to authority, and I'm dealing with eldership and trying to correct some of the wrong teaching that is around at the moment. God bless you all. Amen.